0: Here's
1: John 12, 12 through
0: 36. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your King is coming, sitting So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had been, that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light.
1: Kids, what comes to mind when you think of a prince? What kind of expectations do you have for a prince? Maybe someone who is tall and and maybe dark and handsome, right? Courageous someone who does not look like a troll. Maybe some of us had expectations years ago now for what a future husband or wife might be. Maybe some of us even had a list. This is what I expect of my future spouse. Maybe some of the young girls are beginning to think about that. I suspect boys are still happy playing video games and things like that. But maybe some of the girls are beginning to think about that. Maybe you have expectations of a pastor. and, And you are expecting a real strong communicator, a real good leader, a deep booming voice, and a classy dresser. I'm here to ask you, how's that working out for you? Not great, right? We, we have these expectations, and the text that Jake read for us, the crowds have expectations of Jesus. I want to show you three expectations that the crowds have of Jesus. And then, at the end, or towards the end, I want to take a look at a principle that Jesus teaches In the middle of this text. So let's start with the three expectations that the crowds have for Jesus. I say crowds because I think there are two crowds represented in this text. And I get that from verses numbers 17 and 18. I think I just said verses numbers. From verse numbers 17 and 18. Uh, There seems to be a crowd that witnessed the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And they are traveling with Jesus into Jerusalem. And then there seems to be a second crowd that has gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover. We don't know how many people this could be. um, But one historian, a guy named Josephus, said that when the Jews gathered for Passover, one particular Passover that he wrote about, he said 2.7 million people in Jerusalem. Lots of people. So I think there are two crowds. The one crowd coming with Jesus into Jerusalem and the other crowd gathered up in Jerusalem ready to celebrate the Passover. But the crowd that's coming with Jesus is stirred up because they have just witnessed a resurrection. They can't stop talking about it. Did you hear what Jesus did? I heard he raised somebody from the dead. Yeah, but I heard that he was dead for four days. Four days? He must have been so stinky. Oh, he was stinky. He was stinky. But then Jesus called his name, and he just walked right out of the grave. It blew my ever-loving mind. I couldn't believe it. I was sitting there watching. And then here comes the dead guy. If Twitter was a thing, then Jesus would be trending, right? His viral videos, this would be a viral video on YouTube if there ever was one. Lazarus comes walking out of the grave when Jesus called him. Blowing up YouTube. This crowd, these crowds that are collapsing on Jesus outside of Jerusalem, this is where we get the triumphal entry. Look what happens in verse number 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. The people are stirred up and they are shouting and they have expectations. And this little verse helps us understand what their expectations are. Hosanna, it means save us, Lord. Maybe even save us now, Lord. Blessed is he who comes. He who comes is shorthand for the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes. Blessed is the Messiah. And then the last thing they say, even the king. Blessed is the king. This is how you might say if you were in Britain or one of the commonwealth, I think it's nations, right? In one of the common, you would say, long live the queen. That's what they're saying about Jesus. Blessed is he, may God bless him. They have expectations. Big expectations for Jesus. Jesus. But notice, Jesus does not meet their expectations. Verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. If these verses sound familiar, it's because they are from the book of Zechariah that we just studied this last fall. Kids, what do you expect a king to ride on? A horse. Maybe even a white horse. A stallion. A charger. Something big and powerful. Like Maximus in Tangled, right? Not like the donkey in Shrek. But here comes Jesus with all of these amazing expectations, and these two crowds all stirred up and excited about him and what he is going to do and how he is going to save them. And here comes Jesus. Riding into town on a donkey. What would you think about a king... Who rides on a donkey instead of on a powerful white horse. You know, he is not what I had in mind. This is not at all what I thought the Messiah would be like. Verse 16 tells us even his disciples have unmet expectations. Jesus doesn't meet their expectations. Here's the first reason why. Because Jesus' mission is spiritual and not political. His mission is spiritual, not political. The crowd expects a powerful leader, victory over the Romans, freedom from government oppression, that's what they expect. And in Jesus, they get a humble teacher, a mission to conquer sin and death, and freedom from judgment and guilt. Not at all what they were expecting of the Messiah. How do you respond when Jesus does not meet your expectations? What happens in your heart when Jesus does not give you what you ask for? What happens when Jesus does not relieve your grief or ease your pain? What happens when Jesus does Not answer all of your why questions. What happens when Jesus does not resolve your stressful situations at work? Or when he doesn't fix your broken family relationships? When Jesus doesn't doesn't meet your expectations, I wonder... Will you give up on Jesus? Will you harden your heart against God? Will you abandon the gospel? Jesus's mission is spiritual, not political. By all means, you should be a good steward of your vote. But please vote without fear, because I promise you, Jesus won't be on the ballot. The one who humbly rides the donkey into Jerusalem, that one reigns now and forever from his throne at the Father's right hand. No one votes for the King of Kings. Is that true? No one votes for the king of kings. This crowd's response to Jesus provokes the religious leaders. We see this down in verse number 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. These are the same people That we saw who are ready to kill not only Jesus, but Lazarus as well. Because Jesus raised him from the dead. You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, I love this. The world has gone after him. Kids, maybe you would say something like, Everybody else is doing it. Why can't I do that? Or... I said this on Friday when I was at Costco at a terrible time. Everyone and their mother is here. I can't even push this massive cart around these aisles. There are too many people. Everyone is here. That's how these Pharisees are talking. The world has gone after him. There is some irony here in these words that's masked to us in the English language. But I want to offer it to you because I think it's worth noticing. When these Pharisees say, the whole world is going out to him. What do they mean? Well, they mean everyone in Jerusalem. That's the scope of their world. But John, as he records their words... John uses the word, the real word, for world. The same word that, he's gonna, that he used already in John 3.16 when he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Their scope is all of Jerusalem. All of the Jews are going out to him. They're all going to believe in him. And John says, oh, you have no idea. You have no idea of the scope of people who are going to go after Jesus. People from all over the world will follow him. Look what John does next. Verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So far, it's all all about the Jews. And here John says, hold on just a minute. When I use that word world, I mean it. Here are some Gentiles, people who are not part of God's covenant in the Old Testament. What's going on here? Verse 20, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus told, answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Something in the coming of these Greeks, these non-Jewish people to Jesus and asking to see him, something in their coming triggered for Jesus that the hour has now come. Up until now, he has always said, the hour is not yet. It's not yet my hour. The hour is not here yet. The hour has not yet come. But now these Gentiles come to seek him. And Jesus says, now the hour has come. I wonder if some of those who heard Jesus say this were thinking, finally, finally, Yes, this is what we have been waiting for. The king has entered the city. To the wild cheers of his loyal subjects. We're going to overlook the donkey thing. He's going to make his way to the throne. And he is going to ascend the throne. Conquer our enemies. And then he will reign. Glory. But not so fast, because Jesus is not done talking yet. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Again, Jesus will not meet their expectations. They want a king who will ascend the throne and destroy their enemies. And Jesus says, You misunderstand me. I will achieve victory. By dying for my enemies. Not by destroying my enemies. The crowd expects salvation from the power of Rome. And Jesus is about to save his people from the power of sin. Jesus takes sin's curse so that his people can have God's blessing. Jesus experiences God's wrath on the cross so that, so that his followers can receive God's mercy. Jesus dies so that he can provide eternal life for all who believe in him. Jesus is placed temporarily, temporarily in the grave to ensure that none of his brothers and sisters will stay permanently in the grave. How does that sound? Jesus compares himself to a grain of of wheat, A seed. And he knows that in order for that seed to produce fruit, it's got to be put into the ground. It must die in order for the fruit to come. And as he talks about his own death, the wonderful, beautiful heart of Jesus becomes unsettled. Look at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, troubled, unsettled, in turmoil within. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Why is Jesus troubled? Well, if I could use this illustration, Jesus is between a rock and a hard place. Kids, do you know what it means to be stuck between a rock and a hard place? I'll give you an illustration of my illustration. And then we'll pick this back up. Uh, the, the illustration, I'm going to give you the illustration right now. I'm going to help you see it with a word picture. Good, good question. Thank you for that. An illustration is a word picture. Here's the word picture, okay? You are outside playing. And as you are outside playing, your dad says to you, listen, it's almost time for dinner. I do not want you to get dirty can you imagine going outside and playing right now and not getting dirty? Everything is so muddy and gross. But your dad says, I do not want you to get dirty. It's almost time for dinner. In just a minute, I'm going to call you in. You get so excited about being outside and so excited about the fact that you're about to have dinner that you forget what your dad has said. You disobey him and you go jump in a massive mud puddle outside. And then you hear your dad call, it's time for dinner, come on, I want you to come in for dinner now. And you look down and you realize you are all muddy. And then your dad says, we're having your favorite, it's mac and cheese, not the powder kind, the real kind with the squirt cheese on it, it's the real thing. You're going to love it. And you look down and you realize, I can't go in right now. Uh, I am stuck between a rock and a hard place. I want to go in and eat my favorite mac and cheese, but I cannot go in right now because what am I going to tell my dad? Because I am all muddy. You are stuck between a rock and a hard place. Listen, here's Jesus, and he is... Stuck, if I can use this illustration, between a rock and a hard place. He knows what? He knows that he must go to the cross and die. And he knows that he must obey the will of the Father. He anticipates that in just five days he is going to suffer all of the pain, all of the grief, all of the hurt, all of the wrath of God. He knows that that awaits him in five short days. And he is wholeheartedly devoted to the plan of redemption. He is stuck between a rock and a hard place. And so his soul is troubled. He is in turmoil in his heart. I love that John here, who paints us wonderful pictures of the deity of Jesus, in other words, that Jesus is truly God. Throughout his gospel, here John gives us a tiny little glimpse of the humanity of Jesus. That he was a real human male. And that his heart was in turmoil, troubled, stirred up at the thought of going to the cross, combined with the thought of his own devotion. To the plan of redemption. What will he do? What will he say? Listen. Verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come. To this hour. Remember what he said in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, if there if there is any other way, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. This seems to be John's recording of that same type of event. Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. And then what? Verse 28 Father, glorify your name. In the garden, not my will, but yours be done. Here, this purpose, this is why I came. This is my hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The Father speaks. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now... Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him. Notice their misunderstanding. Notice their expectation. We have heard from the law. We've read about this in our Old Testament scripture. That's how we would understand it. The law from the Old Testament scripture. That the Christ, the Messiah, remains forever. He's going to live forever, he's going to be king forever. What are you talking about? I thought you were the Messiah. I thought you were the promised one, the one sent from God, the one who's going to deliver us from our enemies. What are you talking about, dying? How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? See, the crowd expects that the Messiah will live forever, and he will. But first, he will die. First, he will lay down his life. And what they misunderstand is that Jesus will glorify God first by dying and then by rising and living forever. They miss this in the Old Testament scripture. How does Jesus' death glorify God? How does Jesus' death glorify God? Well, Jesus' death glorifies God's holiness. God will not sweep sin under the rug. He never has and he never will. Sin in all of its vile repulsive ugliness grotesqueness all of it will be gathered up and then poured out on Jesus on the cross god's holiness will be honored and so Jesus will glorify that his god's holiness But Jesus' death also glorifies God's justice. How so? Well, Jesus makes a full payment for sin. Sometimes we sing together, full atonement can it be? All of the times when we have said, that's not fair. I can't believe that happened to those people. I can't believe that has happened to me. I can't believe I have been so mistreated. We cry out for justice. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. We want justice. And on the cross, Jesus' death will glorify God's justice. How so? Because Jesus will make a full payment for sin. Jesus' death glorifies God's love. As he is lifted up on the cross, Jesus says, I'm going to draw all kinds of people to myself. People from all over the world will hear the story of me going to the cross and dying there. And so on the cross, Jesus glorifies God's love. Jesus glorifies God's grace. Though Jesus was rich, Paul writes, he became poor. Why? So that you, through his poverty, might be made rich. You don't deserve Jesus. I don't deserve Jesus. There's nothing that we can do to earn Jesus, and yet God freely gives him to the world. And so on the cross, Jesus Glorifies God's grace. Jesus glorifies God's power. As promised. In the garden of Eden. The serpent bruises Jesus' heel. And yet Jesus crushes the serpent's head. And we have recorded for us in the book of Hebrews, through his death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Through his death, Jesus glorifies God's power. Jesus doesn't meet the crowd's expectations. His mission is spiritual, not political. He achieves victory through his death. Not through the deaths of his enemies. And Jesus glorifies God first by dying and then by living forever. My friend, King Jesus does not barricade himself behind castle walls, he is not cold, he is not distant. He is not unaware of you. He invites you to believe in him. And so I ask you do you believe in Jesus? Look at Jesus' words in verse 35. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Sobering words. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, listen, believe in the light that you may become sons, that you may become children of light. And then notice what happens next. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. He creates a little illustration for them. The light is only among you for a little while longer. While you have the light, believe in the light. Become a child of the light. And then Jesus removes himself from this massive crowd. These two crowds of people that have conversed on him. And they can't find him anymore. What a sobering little parable Jesus gives them. Do you believe in Jesus? If not, I urge you to trust him quickly. The hour has come, as Jesus said. Believe now, while you still have the light of the gospel. I'd like to go back into the heart of this text because there is a principle here that we need to pay attention to, and here is the principle. A seed in the hand never produces fruit. Thank you, Zeke, for asking. I'm going to give you another illustration uh, this morning, and here it comes, okay? So, Imagine that you come to our home here in a couple of weeks or something like that, and I say to you, hey, I don't know if you knew this about me or not, but um, I'm going to grow some peppers so we can make some salsa. And you say, that's wonderful. Can I see how that's going for you? And I say, sure, yeah, you bet. And I reach down into my pocket, and I say, it's right here. I have it right here. You you have what? I have the seeds right here in my hand for the peppers. I'm growing peppers. You would rightly look at me and think, right? You, You have lost it, man. Because we all know what needs to happen for a seed to grow. What do you have to do with the seed? Can you grow it in your hand? That would be weird, right? It's not going to grow in your hand. You, you open your hand and you dump the seed into the ground so that the seed can go into the ground and die there. And then that seed will produce fruit. Fruit. Listen to Jesus' words, beginning again at verse number 24. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... child of God. Love your life and you will ultimately lose it. Or hate your life in this world and you will gain eternal life. What does it look like to love your life in this world? It looks like making it your goal to always be safe and secure and comfortable and surrounded by very nice things. That would be loving your life in this world. I was just thinking about this this morning. Living your best life now. That is loving your life in this world Focusing on yourself, what I want, what I think, what I need, what I feel. Jesus says, if you love your life in this way, you are about to lose it. Don't listen to the false gospel that says, live your best life now. That's trash. Trash, brothers and sisters. Here's the choice that Jesus offers you. Hate your life in this world. Hate your life in this world. Make sacrifices for the sake of the gospel. Take big risks in faith, believing that God is always working. Instead of thinking that your rights and freedoms are most important, seek first the kingdom of God, so that you can say, take all of my rights, take all of my freedoms away, just let me tell everyone I can about Jesus. I don't care about my rights and freedoms, so long as I can testify about Jesus with my dying breath. Take them all away. Embrace suffering for doing good. Love the unlovely. Bless those who curse you. Be humble instead of proud. Be gentle when you could use your strength to get your own way. Jesus says, this choice, hating your life in this world, leads to eternal life. A seed in the hand never produces fruit. Listen, as as we give up our desires to be safe and secure and comfortable and surrounded by nice things, we will look exactly like fools to this world. We will look like fools to this world, but we will also look more and more and more like Jesus. I wonder if you will make the choice that Jesus. Made. to be on a spiritual kind of mission rather than a political mission, to achieve God's victory by dying for the sake of the gospel rather, rather than destroying your enemies. I wonder if you will glorify God by dying to yourself so that you can live him. Following Jesus will always cost you something. But I wonder if you would consider this morning dying to yourself. Dying to your little dreams. Dying to protecting your reputation and defending your honor. Dying to self-centeredness. Dying to to a small, stingy kind of life. A seed in the hand never produces fruit. It must go into the ground and die. Brothers and sisters, the hour has come. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Die with him. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, like Jesus, you will produce much fruit and glorify God. Let's pray.